Hello, welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast produced by the Heart Failure Society of America. Heart Failure Beat is designed specifically for clinicians who treat heart failure patients in the United States of America and around the world. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Priya Mapathy, an assistant professor of medicine and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And my name is Dr. Michael Beasley, assistant professor of medicine and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now let's get to our episode. Hey, Michael. How are you doing today? Hey, Priya. Well, I'm doing great. I'm so excited that, you know, we're finally rolling out our first episode of the podcast with us being the co-hosts. Been looking forward to this day. Me too. Me too. Yes, it's our first official episode and we're going all out, bringing our listeners a two-part series. Not one, but two. (laughs) I guess we just had so much fun. We couldn't uh, think about putting it all into this one episode. We We had to do more. Uh, maybe a bold move, but uh, hopefully everyone's as excited about what we put together as as we are. I think we packed it with a couple of really cool people with a lot of really cool thoughts and insights. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive in with your brand new segment first, Heart Failure Rounds. Welcome to HF Rounds. This is Dr. Michael Beasley. I'm really happy that you had the time to join us today, and I'd like to share some articles that have been recently published in a variety of journals, which caught my eye and which I feel are important for those clinicians taking care of patients with heart failure to be aware of. So without further ado, let's hit the wards and let's start rounding. The first paper that I'd like to talk about was published in Circulation Heart Failure. The title of this paper is Neighborhood Socioeconomic Disadvantage and Hospitalized Heart Failure Outcomes in the American Heart Association Get with the Guidelines Heart Failure Registry. The primary author of this paper was Dr. Vishal Rao from the Division of Cardiology at the Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. Before describing the paper, I'd like to take a moment to read the introductory paragraph from the manuscript. I think that the way that the authors phrased the sentiments uh, in this opening paragraph really mirrors how I feel or why I believe that what we do in delivering this podcast to you, uh, why it's so important and why it's so important for us to do what we do to take care of patients with heart failure and just to frame the problem uh, that we're facing. So the authors open up by saying, Heart failure affects over 6.5 million adults in the United States and carries a survival comparable to many cancers with approximately 50% mortality at five years after diagnosis. Heart failure remains the most common reason for hospitalization among patients aged greater than 65 years. And patients hospitalized for heart failure carry exceedingly high risk for 30-day mortality and re-hospitalization. Despite the availability of multiple approved oral medications proven to reduce risk of mortality in heart failure hospitalization, heart failure contributes to a high burden of cardiovascular disease, reduced patient-reported quality of life, and increased healthcare expenditure. So again, I think that really does a great job in framing why what we are doing here is so important and why as collectively as a heart failure community, 
uh, has such a, a big task ahead of us to try to take care of our people. And now let's get back to the manuscript. Well, we know that socioeconomic status uh, influences premature cardiovascular mortality and the uh, risk for heart failure hospitalizations, but there's less known about how socioeconomic status impacts outcomes from heart failure hospitalizations. There's a belief that there's an association between uh, neighborhood socioeconomic status disadvantage and heart failure outcomes, including length of stay, uh, different heart failure quality metrics, and all-cause mortality. So to investigate this further, the authors of this paper looked at patients from diverse neighborhoods across the United States of America who were enrolled with the guidelines heart failure registry and had been hospitalized for heart failure between the years of 2017 and 2020 with recorded zip codes attached to their hospital admission data. Overall, approximately 600,000 patients were included in this study. SES disadvantage scores were calculated based upon geocoded U.S. census data, and patients were placed into one of five quintiles. The socioeconomic status scores included a variety of variables, which included average household income, home value, percentage of households receiving interest dividends or net rental income, percentage of adults over the age of 25 who had completed a high school or college degree, and percentage of working adults who were employed in executive, managerial, or professional specialties. The authors discovered that patients from more disadvantaged neighborhoods and those that had been admitted for heart failure hospitalization from those neighborhoods were more likely to be younger, their mean age was 67 years old in the most disadvantaged quintile versus 76 in the least disadvantaged quintile. And they were more likely to have comorbidities, including COPD and diabetes. And also patients from the most disadvantaged quintile were much more likely to be black and were more likely to be Hispanic as well. What they found was that the patients in the most disadvantaged quintile also had a slightly longer length of stay, six days versus five for the other four quintiles. And patients in that most disadvantaged quintile, perhaps surprisingly, were more likely to be discharged to home at the end of the hospitalization, as opposed to being discharged to another healthcare facility, like a short-term rehab facility, or discharged to hospice uh, facilities or home with hospice. But the biggest item and the primary outcome that was investigated in the study was in regard to all-cause mortality of those that were admitted with heart failure hospitalizations. The odds of death were 28% greater for those from the most disadvantaged quintile. Additionally, the risk of death during the hospitalization increased when moving from the least disadvantaged quintile to the most disadvantaged quintile. Therefore, the authors demonstrate evidence that the socioeconomic status of the neighborhood from which a heart failure patient comes from directly impacts their hospital outcome when they're admitted for decompensated heart failure. 
The next paper that I would like to look at was published in Jack Heart Failure. The title of this paper is Treatment Differences in Medical Therapy for Heart Failure with Reduced Ejection Fraction Between Sociodemographic Groups. The primary author of this paper was Dr. Celeste Whitting from the Department of Medicine at Stanford University in Stanford, California. So the authors of this paper knew, as we had just mentioned previously, that black patients are more likely to develop heart failure and be hospitalized with heart failure and more likely to die from heart failure. But we also know that we have guideline-directed medical therapies that have proven to reduce mortality risk in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Therefore, the authors of this paper were interested in assessing for disparities in the prescription and titration of guideline-directed medical therapies based upon patient race and ethnicity. Data from the study was collected from patients at the uh, VA health system between the years of 2013 and 2019. These patients had a recent diagnosis of HEFREF, which was defined as a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than equal to 40% within one year of the heart failure diagnosis. The authors then sought to identify the initiation and titration of guideline-directed medical therapy within six months of the index date of diagnosis. The guideline-directed medical therapies which were examined included evidence-based beta blockers, renin-angiotensin system inhibitors, which would include ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, and angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, and then a final category that looked at angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibition in the absence of other forms of renin-angiotensin system inhibitors. They analyzed if patients were able to be at least on 50% of target dose, as well as if patients were able to be on target dose. What they discovered was that there was no difference in guideline-directed medical therapy dosing initiation and titration based upon race and ethnicity among patients in the VA health system. The third paper that I'd like to talk about was published in the American Journal of Cardiology. The title of this paper is Disparities in Practice Patterns by Sex, Race, and Ethnicity in Patients Referred for Advanced Heart Failure Therapies. The primary author on this paper is Dr. Jared Herr from the Sutter Health Center for Advanced Heart Failure at the California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco, California. The authors of this paper based their study upon the idea that black and Hispanic patients bear a high burden of heart failure. They have worse clinical outcomes when compared to white patients, and when evaluated for advanced heart failure therapies, they typically tend to be sicker at the time of evaluation. If we know this, then the question is why does this happen? especially considering that we know that advanced heart failure therapies, such as heart transplantation and left ventricular assist device implantation, improve survival for patients with advanced heart failure, ACC, AHA, stage D heart failure. Well, unfortunately for us advanced heart failure cardiologists, those patients first must be referred to us for evaluation before we can determine if they might be a candidate for these therapies. Therefore, the investigators tried to determine if there was any barrier in referral patterns based upon ethnicity and sex and race of a patient 
that would be in need of advanced heart failure therapies. In their study, they looked at 515 patients who were referred for advanced therapies at nine centers across the United States of America. These patients were collected by looking at the nine centers and asking them to identify their most recent 50 to 100 completed evaluations for advanced therapies up to July 1st of 2018. And these evaluations had to have taken place over the prior 12 to 18 months. Therefore, these evaluations all took place during the years of 2017 and 2018. Centers that were involved in this study included California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco, the Cleveland Clinic, MedStar Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C., Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan, Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, Scripps Clinic in San Diego, St. Vincent Health Center in Indianapolis, Indiana, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, as well as University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. What the investigators found was that 73.4% of patients referred for advanced therapies evaluation were men, 55.8% of patients referred for advanced therapies evaluation were white, and the median age of these white patients who were referred was 58 years old. 51.5% of patients had a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 20%. And amazingly, approximately 75% of patients were already on some form of temporary support, either an inotrope or temporary mechanical circulatory support at the time of referral for evaluation. White patients who were referred were more likely to be suffering from uh, ischemic cardiomyopathy when compared to non-white patients. And men also were more likely to be suffering from an ischemic cardiomyopathy when compared to women. The reason for non-whites to be referred to an advanced heart failure center for evaluation was predominantly for quote-unquote worsening heart failure, whereas for white patients, it was more commonly due to ventricular tachyarrhythmias and progressive pulmonary hypertension. Overall, the patients that were uh, evaluated in this study of those that were evaluated for uh, heart transplant, 43.4% of the patients were approved for that therapy. But of that, 51.8% of white patients were approved versus 33.1% of non-white patients. Additionally, when being evaluated for left ventricular assist device implantation overall, 57.3% of these patients were approved for that therapy. But when looking at this a bit closer, 60.3% of white patients were approved versus just 54.1% of non-white patients. The fourth paper that we'd like to talk about today was published in Circulation Heart Failure. And the title of this paper is Racial Inequities in Access to Ventricular Assist Device and Transplant Persist After Consideration for Preferences for Care, a report from the Revival Study. The first author on this paper was Dr. Tom Cassino from the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The authors point out that heart failure is 20 times more common among black adults less than age 50 when compared to white patients, and that black adults in this category have twice as high a rate of hospitalization and death when compared to white patients. Therefore, incredibly, incredibly more common 
in the black population while also being much more dangerous in this population group. As we mentioned in the paper we just spoke about, there are inequities in the use of LVAD and heart transplant that's been documented in underserved populations, but the reason for this remains unclear. Therefore, the authors of this study uh, wanted to understand the effects of the social determinants of health on patient preference for the utilization of either heart transplant or left ventricular assist devices. To do this, they used the uh, Revival HF registry. Revival HF was a prospective NIH-funded study, which enrolled ambulatory HEFREF patients between the years of 2015 and 2016. In the end, the investigators found that patient preference for care was not the reason for inequities in access to ventricular assist device implantation, meaning that although black patients may be perceived as being less willing to undergo left ventricular assist device implantation, this in itself cannot explain the disparity between the number of implantations between black patients and those from other ethnic groups. While the reasons for this are still not exactly clear, the authors argue that there's an urgent need for providers to acknowledge their role in perpetuating current inequities and the future role that they may have in engendering change. The authors of the paper would like for us to consider the following possibilities as methods for overcoming these disparities. And these steps would include mandatory implicit bias training for those involved in the care of patients with heart failure, standardizing the evaluation for ventricular assist devices and transplants, and the inclusion of disparity experts in meetings when we were talking about patients and their candidacy for advanced heart failure therapies. And finally, our fifth paper to discuss today was published in the Journal of Cardiac Failure. The title of this paper is Readability and Non-English Language Resources of Heart Transplant Center Websites in the United States. First author on this paper is Dr. James Stewart from the Department of Surgery at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The authors of this paper point out that in the United States of America, 67 million people speak in language other than English in their home. That being said, information provided on websites from heart transplant programs across the country is vastly delivered in the English language. The investigators reviewed the websites of all U.S. heart transplant centers as were identified by UNOS in August of 2022. They were interested in this because they do understand that health literacy can affect patient outcomes and that heart transplant is associated with a number of complex terms and concepts, which may be difficult for non-primary English speakers to understand. Through their review of the content provided on the websites for the heart transplant programs, the patient-facing information was analyzed according to a variety of different scores, which included the Fry readability score, the Flesch-Kincaid grade level, the Gunning-Fogg score, and SMOG, which on a side note was my personal favorite, which stands for the simple measure of gobbledygook. What the investigators found was that many heart transplant centers 
do not provide any translation of the English language on their websites for non-English speakers. There was some regional variation to this. Heart transplant centers most likely to provide non-English translations of the information posted on their website included those in UNOS regions 5 and 6, which include the western part of the United States of America. Those least likely to provide non-English translations included programs in UNOS regions 2 and 3. UNOS region 2 includes states such as Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland. And more surprisingly, maybe UNOS Region 3, which includes states such as Florida and other states on the Gulf Coast, where you would imagine a number of people living there might be non-primary English speakers. According to the Fry Readability Score, the English that was provided on these websites was at the level of a college junior. The National Institutes of Health recommend that information being posted for public use is written at a sixth grade level, and our reading average in the United States overall is at an eighth grade reading level. Therefore, publishing information for patients about heart transplantation that requires three years of a college education likely is going to be too complex for the vast majority of the people who are seeking these therapies. Well, thank you for joining me for the inaugural HF rounds. We hit the wards and I hope we learned a lot today. And in closing, I just must say that as a alumnus of Michigan State University, it did pain me to pick two articles written by folks from the University of Michigan, but they were great articles, so I have to give them the credit. Now, on to our featured interview. As this year is drawing to a close, we thought that it was really important to look back on the highlights in science and research for the year. And who better to help us explore those hot takes than the leaders of the Heart Failure Society of America? We'll be joined on this two-part episode series by two industry powerhouses, HFSA's immediate past president, Dr. Mark Drasner, and current president, Dr. John Teeling. To help us tackle part one of the series and share his thoughts on the 2022 highlights in heart failure is Dr. Mark Drasner. Uh, Dr. Drasner is the immediate past president of the Heart Failure Society of America, clinical chief of cardiology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time and, and welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. So we're going to be talking over the, the next few moments here about some of the biggest news that came out of 2022 affecting our profession. And where I'd like to start is with something that happened right at the beginning of 2022. And that is the the huge story that came out of the University of Maryland in that they performed a cardiac xenotransplant. As you know, the, there was a patient that they had at their medical center who was not a candidate for either durable mechanical circulatory support or cardiac transplantation with a human allograft. Therefore, they, they were able to get emergency use authorization to attempt a xenotransplant with a genetically modified pig heart. 
And as we know that, you know, this was something that was really not only covered in our media, but also in the lay press and was a pretty big deal all around. Patient did pretty well for about two months and then unfortunately he did pass away, but it was still a big event for our field. You know, one of the big things that we've had issues with in the field of heart transplant over the last several years, or one of the things we've been trying to tackle is uh, expanding the donor pool, finding more donor hearts for those that are on the wait list needing a, a heart transplant. So I guess, Dr. Drasner, Mark, when you would look at this, I guess, what is the feasibility you think moving forward of a method like xenotransplantation and helping us to find more donor hearts for our, our heart transplant waitlisted patients? You know, and especially in compared to other things that we're making use of currently, like using hepatitis C positive donors and uh, donation after circulatory death and the use of ex vivo perfusion devices. Do you think this is something that's going to join uh, those other options sometime uh, in the next coming years? Yeah, thank you, Michael. You know, it's as you point out, it, it was an incredible event. I think caught many of us off guard to actually see it being done in humans. Of course, I think everyone's been aware of the field of xenotransplant, but frankly, I, I was not aware that we were at the point of actually implementing this with, with an actual patient. And so it's one of those moments when you see that and hear about it that uh, it's just awe-inspiring. In terms of you know, the potential for this, of course, is huge. As, as you point out, we all too often lose patients uh, while we're waiting for grafts to become available. Even though we've made substantial advances, and you pointed out a number of approaches that, that are, have been beneficial and, and certainly are important in their own right, none really at the end of the day uh, solve the true huge burden of people with end-stage heart failure. And even if you get all the hepatitis C donors and even with ex vivo or DCD, it's just not going to be enough organs. But imagine a day where you could have as many hearts as you need and imagine a day where potentially even with genetic modifications potentially even you could perhaps induce tolerance or, uh, you know, of course, it's way, way far away from that. But, but the implications of this, I, I think, are profound if it could work. So it's very exciting. And it's just the beginning, of course. But it's one of those moments that I think I'll always remember, and I suspect many of us will, as potentially, you know, changing the way, potentially changing the way that we uh, can take care of patients with that stage thing. Yeah, it was such a surprising thing, I guess, for me to see it when that was initially published and the news came out that uh, this had been done and, you know, and, and just in, engaging with the fellows here at the program where I work, you know, they were all super excited about this, even if they're not excited about heart transplant in general, this was a big deal for the whole cardiology community. Another question I had in regards to uh, xenotransplantation was that in this specific example, you know, they used a porcine donor heart that was a viable option because through gene editing, uh, they reduced the immunogenicity of the graft. And therefore, this allowed us to use our standard immunosuppressive therapies, despite this not being a human allograft. But this also kind of opens the door to the thought that maybe if further gene editing could potentially reduce the need for immunosuppression even more. And as we know, you know, some of the long-term complications of after heart transplant involve that long-term exposure to immunosuppressive therapies. Now, Mr. Bennett, the patient in this case, he passed away due to some type of infectious complication, and the, the medical team said they had a hard time balancing between his immunosuppressive dosing and, and treating the infection, which is not an uncommon thing that we have to do in a lot of heart transplant patients. But uh, still being said, do you think that if the science advanced to a point where it allows us to maybe use less immunosuppression? Or, I mean, would that be something that could open the door to make it even more of a mainstream option? And obviously, this is a pie-in-the-sky probably idea that's way down the road, but just interested to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, certainly. And and I first comment on your on your your early comment about the excitement it created amongst your co-fellows. I think that's why this field is so incredible the, the, that we're in with, with heart failure. The advances are just just breathtaking how quickly they've been coming and so, so much energy and excitement uh, created by advances like this. In terms of the potential, yeah, I think it's a long way away because you, you're basically suggesting, as I mentioned earlier, that potentially you could genetically modify the pig heart so that it would actually be more immunotolerant than taking a human allograft and giving it to another patient. I think we are a long, long way away from that. But just the fact that we've even gotten away from hyperacute rejection by crossing species is is pretty remarkable. And then the immunosuppression, you know, this is one of those areas that we have, frankly, I don't think anyone really has any idea on what the optimum way to immunosuppress a patient who receives a genetically modified porcine heart is. I know that the regimen that they used uh, in Mr. Bennett's case was actually different than a lot of what the experimental models they had used, partially because... It was a situation where, as you can imagine, the first person, you're going to take someone who is, there is nothing else to offer, and um, he was desperately ill. And at least my understanding was that his uh, comorbid conditions prevented uh, them using maximum doses of some of the immunosuppression that they might have wanted to use or some of the antivirals that they might have wanted to use and potentially uh, ultimately contributed to less than his optimum outcome. I think for now, we're in just such early phases, but for me, I'm not sure anyone really knows what the best way to immunosuppress. Well, I'm pretty confident no one knows what the best way to immunosuppress a, a human being is who receives such a modified uh, mm-hmm. organ. So a lot of work to get. It's just beginning, even though it's mm-hmm. been going on for decades. This, it's such an exciting idea to think about. You can kind of just think about all the different possibilities where this might go. But, you know, it, a lot of a lot of sweat went into getting us this far from the researchers that put in all the time to develop the science that got us to even be able to do this. And I'm sure there's got to be so much more that needs to be done moving forward, but still a super exciting event that happened this past year. Um, the last question I have for you is a little bit different and uh, it kind of goes more along the lines of how this became such a popular news item, not only in the medical press, but in the lay press as well. And how do we as a medical community best traverse this divide between you know, the information that's being shared amongst the population versus what we share internally in that we don't want to mislead the population into thinking things that aren't necessarily true. And I guess what I'm trying to get at with this is that, you know, when the transplant happened, obviously it was on CNN and every other news network, everybody is really proclaiming how wonderful this was. And I think that may have misled the community, or maybe I'm making an assumption here, but to think that, you know, this was going to be a great outcome. And then you know, two months later when the patient passes away, where maybe we as a medical community weren't too surprised because we do lose our transplant patients sometimes very shortly after transplant, and this was a high-risk uh, transplant going in. But then I just wonder how that makes the, you know, the lay population look at this. Is was this, a, you know, a medical achievement or was it a medical failure? Did we get out in front of things before we, we should have? And especially after we're coming out of the, the COVID pandemic with so much being said about how the medical community informs and educates the population. Just wanted to get your thoughts about how we should go about doing these types of things in regards to the, you know, the advances that we're going to come up with in the field of heart failure moving forward. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, critically important information, as you point out, in modern day with the COVID uh, situation and misinformation and, and frankly, mistrust of science um, and medicine, it, it is even critically more important now than ever. In this particular case, at least at least my personal observations was I, I saw fairly balanced reporting. I think this was such a monumental event that it, it was worthy of, you know, worldwide dissemination, even recognizing that... Um, Likely the outcome was not going to be be what we all hoped, but just the fact that it was tried and the person survived, uh, that in itself, I think, was worthy of worldwide dissemination. The reporting I saw, I think, was fairly balanced. And I think the people who were speaking were saying, you know, this is such uncharted territory that no one really knows what's going to happen. Was my perception, but I think your points, as, as I said, it's, it's critically important. I think for those of us who aren't involved in such monumental work, when you do report your or others, I think it is it's important to remember that uh, we certainly don't want to mislead the non-medical community and give them false hope. And you do see that often where there's some, you know, an early scientific experiment in the basic lab, and it'll include with this maybe a treatment that can novel way to treat heart failure. And we all know that, you know, it's a it's an announced model or or maybe even it's a phase one trial that the chance of it ultimately leading to that result is pretty small. It is something that we all need to be careful about when we are speaking to the uh, non-medical community. Well, thanks, Mark, so much for answering my questions. And I would like to now uh, pass things along to my co-host, Priya, and she's going to uh, have some questions about the second large topic from 2022 that caught our attention. Thanks so much, Mark. That was amazing. So from one revolutionary item to maybe something that's revolutionary, but maybe just a little bit older. So there are these class of medications that have really transformed the way we do guideline-directed medical therapy. And I feel like the slogan for SGLT2 inhibitor therapy in 2022 appears almost to be start anywhere and in all, given the results of some trials such as Deliver and Impulse. And I was hoping, you know, we have had just an embarrassment of riches and data that have come out from SGLT2 inhibitor trials over the past just few years. And I was wondering for our listening audience, if I could get your erudite opinion on your top takeaways from Deliver and Impulse, and um, I'll have some follow-up questions about the trials. Sure. And, uh, you know, Priya, I would agree with you. And, and when I, I talk about this with uh, trainees uh, on rounds, I, I would say this is really one of the most remarkable stories that I've seen unfold in medicine in my career to see a class of agents that were designed to lower the blood sugar ultimately end up being this incredibly effective therapy, first in uh, preventing heart failure among diabetics, then extended to patients who had heart failure reduced ejection fraction. And then extending to patients who have heart failure reserved ejection fraction and even acutely decompensated heart failure. Deliver, of course, was the second trial that demonstrated benefit of SGLT2 inhibition in, in the HEFPAP population, which previously, frankly, we didn't really have any therapies that altered the natural history until the SGLT2 inhibitors first emperor preserved and then deliver, confirming it. And then another incredibly difficult patient population, if you think about it, is the acutely decompensated heart failure population where a litany of trials have been negative. And in fact, I think many people, or some people at least, were starting to say that maybe there's nothing you can do to alter the natural history in, the, in that short term while the patient's in the hospital. And yet we first got a hint of this uh, signal when soloist worsening heart failure, although it was a truncated trial, suggested uh, benefit. And then impulse, I think, really solidified that 
and demonstrated that in uh, decompensated heart failure, you can uh, improve outcomes. They use an interesting win ratio, which I think is increasingly being used in clinical trials and probably uh, increase the power for a relatively small number, number of participants in that trial, but adds strong evidence supporting that acutely decompensated heart failure, SGLT2 inhibitors will be beneficial. In fact, now when I talk to my trainees, I'm predicting in their career, we think we see a patient with decompensated heart failure, got to order the IV Lasix. I think it's not going to be long where you're going to see a patient with acutely decompensated heart failure and you can say, I got to get that SGLT2 inhibitor on just the way we think about it, like with IV Lasix. And I think impulse is, is leading us down that path. I agree. It's uh, one of those, hey, should we just put it in the water and just... <laughs> For all of us. But speaking to that, could you share your thoughts on why you think this class of medication has proven beneficial among such a broad category of heart failure patients? That's an uh, excellent question. It really gets to the heart of the matter, which is <laughs> how in the world are these medications working? And I would say, at least uh, from my perusal of the literature, I don't think anyone really knows yet how we're getting these incredible benefits from these medications. There's a whole slew of hypotheses out there, including altering energy, metabolism, sodium hydrogen pumps, causing remodeling of the heart. But at the end of the day, I don't think anyone really knows yet, which is an important question because you can imagine maybe it's hitting a pathway that if we understand what that pathway is, maybe you can develop even a more potent stimulant or antagonist of that pathway. So getting to the underlying mechanism of these agents is, is critical, especially because of the broad population of patients that it seems to be beneficial, something that seems to be unified throughout all patients with heart failure, none of which is true with any of our other medications, our other foundational medicines. So understanding this mechanism is, is vitally important. And as far as I can tell, no one really yet understands what the real mechanism is. It's, it's remarkable. Agreed. It's a lot of work to be done. So an exciting, exciting field to study and understand. And maybe that informs my next question, which is, which patient groups, if any, remain where evidence for this therapy is not well supported? Yeah, that's another great question. Uh, you know, I think we now know for sure, you know, diabetics to prevent heart failure. We know for sure heart failure reduced ejection fraction, heart failure reserved ejection fraction with or without diabetes beneficial. We don't yet know, there are classes of patients that we don't yet know, post-MI, we don't know yet. There are large trials ongoing, and you know, we are seeing, seeing that every trial has been positive, we suspect that it will be, but we don't have that evidence base. Clinically, not uncommonly, I'll see patients who have asymptomatic left ventricular dysfunction and are not diabetic. And we don't really have uh, great, or really any data supporting the use, in my opinion, of using SGLT2 in patients with ALVD if they're not diabetic. Other populations that come up, increasingly patients with amyloid or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, sarcoid, other infiltrative cardiomyopathies, increasingly getting more and more attention in terms of identifying and treating those with disease-specific therapies. But we don't really know how well a patient with, let's say, amyloid heart disease and restrictive cardiomyopathy, will they A, tolerate these agents and will they derive the same benefit that we see with uh, conditions that we do know benefit of? And then one could extend this. I mean, in my world, of course, post-transplant, post-LVAD, should we be adding these uh, therapies into patients who have LVADs? And will that be a beneficial or a detrimental therapy? Potentially, you could come up with a scenario where maybe you lead to volume depletion and create more LVAD issues, but the weight of the evidence for everything else suggests that you should do that. 
but we don't really have strong evidence. So as much as we've learned, you know, there's still a lot to do here in terms of a number of different patient populations that we need to uh, understand they're ben- whether they're beneficial or not. So lots of work for us as a community to get these answers, both basic ones and clinical ones. And from a population perspective, there is this question of accessibility for the drug. So there's so much data saying that you should really use it in such a wide swath of heart failure populations. How do you foresee improving or expanding accessibility to these drugs? That is another key question that I think as we've all seen the CHAMP registry data showing the, frankly, abysmal rates of even triple guideline-directed medical therapy in the United States has really emphasized the need for us to get better at implementation science. And so we've done all these trials, we've figured out these medications work, and now how do we get them into the hands, or if you will, the mouths of our patients, if you will. I do have some, uh, with SGLT2 inhibitors, I think there are going to be some potential barriers. There's some easy, nice parts of that. It's a single dose, largely, and uh, there's not much effect in terms of hypotension and renal failure. That makes it easier to deliver them. But I do think the fact that they alter glucose levels. I think many cardiologists may say, well, that should be an endocrine. An endocrinologist or the primary care physician should be doing that. Or maybe they're worried about creating hypoglycemia and and don't want to deal with it. I think that's going to be a potential barrier. I also think the urinary tract infections and general infections, I think that, I think among cardiologists probably will be something that, that people will have to work through and get comfortable with talking about those and treating those. How to overcome, so, so you have some easy components, some parts of it that may make it hard. Of course, when you look at the data, it's overwhelming that we need to do this. So how best to do it? And there's various ways. I, one could argue that maybe we need focused clinics to deliver these medications so that each hospital system would have a focused clinic and all patients with heart failure should go to that clinic and get their medications up, you know, up titrated or initiated and up titrated. Another part one could argue is maybe all patients with heart failure should be seen by a cardiologist at least. Or if not, non-cardiologist, let's say a family practitioner or internist, which is fine, but those providers need to be comfortable delivering the therapy. If they're going to, if they're going to be seeing the heart failure patients, I think there should be some a requirement that they're comfortable with GDMT. Otherwise, those patients should be referred on to a higher level of expertise. There's a lot of attention on implementation science now, you know, this leaky pipeline, what people call, you know, the no-do gap. We know what we want to do, but we don't do it. And there's this gap, and there's multiple reasons why that happens. And, you know, there's also, of course, some financial issues. Patients, I know, in my practice, bring up costs. It's a real issue. That's a, another potential barrier to getting these therapies, you know, broadly uh, implemented. So for those of you who are young in your career, we've talked about a lot of exciting opportunities. Implementation science is a really hot topic right now. And uh, if I was starting my career, it's certainly something I would think about getting involved in because uh, there's a lot of work to be done and you can really help a lot of people, I think. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was a great overview and really sort of an inspiring message at the end as sort of a signal to say, hey, we need to forge forward with these really exciting therapies that have emerged. And thank you so much for touching on something as diverse and and amazing as xenotransplantation and really this next wave of uh, amazing drugs, the SGLT2 inhibitors that really is going to just end up in the water one of these days, I'm sure. (laughs) But thank you so much for joining us, Mark. It's been my pleasure. And, uh, you know, this year has been incredible. And again, it just emphasizes what a hot field heart failure is 
and how much energy, excitement, the advances, and how much good we can do for our patients. And hopefully we'll generate excitement among uh, young people and, and have more people join us in this cause of helping, helping our patients. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Bri. Thanks, Mark. Coming up on part two of our series on the 2022 highlights in heart failure, Priya and I pick the brain of HFSA's current president, Dr. John Tierlink, and Priya shares her thoughts during her new segment, From Failure to Function. Stay tuned. On behalf of Michael and myself, we want to thank you for tuning into the Heart Failure Beat. We'll catch you next time with more exciting news and discussions from the world of heart failure. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the Heart Failure Society of America. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit hfsa.org slash hfbeat. Follow HFSA on Twitter and look for us at hashtag hfbeat.